Thank you for listening to the Father's Table podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you share. For more episodes and blogs, check out www.fatherspodcast.com and you can follow us on Instagram at Father's Table Podcast and Twitter at Father Stories. table, an introspective look and conversation about our fathers and how they shaped our lives. Welcome to the Father's Table. I'm your host, Keith. Thanks for listening. Today, I have a very special guest, Bob Shear. Uh, this is really cool. Uh, I've, I've known Bob uh, for a little bit of time through my wife and just and here's just a little bit about Bob that I've you know researching I was overwhelmed by how much information there is about Bob online <laughs> but uh, Bob is an American journalist author and actor who has uh, written for major publications such as Los Angeles Times and Playboy I met Bob like I said through my wife uh, who attends USC and uh, he's gracious enough to sit down with us today. According to my information, Bob has run for United States Congress, written the book titled They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy, and much, much more. Uh, so I'm sure he's going to share more about his journey through life. Bob, welcome to the Father's Table. Okay, and I'm also a father of three and a grandfather of two, and so I'm interested in the subject. Oh, excellent, excellent. Are we yes. talking about the father as in the son of the Lord, or are we talking about uh, fathers of children on this planet? Oh, um, we're, that's a great question. Uh, we're talking about the father's table, like uh, fathers and like our fathers, right? Uh, so everyone has a father, and in the show is just centering around how our fathers have shaped our lives. Now we can talk about the father as a well, father. Well, I'm just referring to you because you, people listening and not watching don't know you're wearing this T-shirt that has a sort of assertion there. Like if you stand up straight, I can read it. Jesus is not a weekend thing. And because yes. I teach an ethics class at USC, I'm always concerned about where do we get our ethics from? Mm. And certainly Jesus, whatever you're, own religious orientation is there's no question thoughts at least attributed to jesus have informed our debate about ethics so uh, you know that's the only reason i'm, I'm not trying to be cute here about our father <laughs> I, that was a serious question about the title of your show oh well thanks uh bob yes i definitely get my uh, guidance from from my faith for sure uh, so this shirt, uh, Jesus is not a weekend thing. It's just a statement saying that um, we have to get out of this mindset of uh, just doing church on Sundays and actually living out our faith th through our lives. Uh, church could look at be looked at as this event that happens once a week. So the shirt is saying it's it's more than a weekend thing. So I like to start out each show uh, with a simple question to our guests. And the, get, the question is this. I want you to close your eyes, take three deep breaths, and tell me what comes to mind when you think about your father. I think he was a really good guy really good guy. He, he, he's somebody I have admired all my life. However, I think he led a complex life. He had to deal with a lot of issues. Uh, we all do, but he had to deal with a lot of issues that I haven't dealt with. So let me tell you a little bit about my father. I've thought a lot about my I've thought a lot about my mother. I'm 84 years old, by the way, and I'm a grandparent of two, and I have three sons. And I think about a lot about you know because the whole thing when I think about dying, uh, I think about you know how are they going to do, and you know I think a lot about my children and grandchildren, uh, and it's sort of my main focus when I think about my own mortality. 
you know, um, I think about other things, uh, you know, like what does it all mean and all that we can discuss. But I would say the primary concern is my wife and the people I care about, which begins with the children and the grandchildren, you know, and they're right here in another room, but I, they can't see us. They, they have to go the other way. We can't talk. We can't, we wear masks, you know, we're all in, in this drill now. And, and it's not only my life that's fragile because of my age, uh, but their lives are fragile. My son, one of my sons had COVID and, you know, and he's now back at work and, you know, but uh, it was frightening. And, you know, he was in the studio next to us and we had to put food by the door and the whole deal, you know. So when you ask about my father, though, I've thought a lot about my father. So let me tell you a little bit of, about my own biography. Aside from that, I, by the way, written 13 books and <laughs> done a lot of journalism and everything else. But, you know, in terms of my, where I come from, I'm actually an accident. Uh, and, uh, you know, my father was young in Germany. I don't know. There's some debate in the family about whether he was 13, 14, or 15. According to the records at Ellis Island, I found out my father probably was around 15, or at least that's what he claimed, maybe to be able to get off the boat. And uh, he had left Germany, and he was one of 13 from a Protestant family, Lutheran family. And, um, you know, he uh, got here. And there was some relative. Why he left is a question. Most of, many of them did leave. Thirteen kids. They were farmers. The farm couldn't really support that many, so the oldest one left to make their fortune and then send money back and everything else. Typical immigrant story. But he came at around the time of First World War, and he never went back. Uh, and yet, other relatives. So half of my family growing up were people from Germany and who came over and they, I bring up the religion only because uh, of world war two and uh, happened that my mother's Jewish. And mm -hmm. so my father came over from Germany. He married a, a woman older than himself who was also from Germany that he met here. Uh, he had two children and, uh, and then uh, he uh, met my mother uh, in the middle of the depression, the great depression uh, and they were both, he was a machinist in the garment district running big knitting machines that happened to be made in Germany and he could read all the manuals and he was good at it. My mother was also a garment worker. She was from Lithuania. And so they met and I am, I was born out of wedlock. My parents never married and religion had something to do with it. The Catholic church had a big hold on New York in those days. And so uh, it was not easy to get an abortion, which I have in my personal case was a good thing because probably I would have been aborted. So uh, let me just jump in. Let yeah. me just jump in right here. So you said uh, it, it, it was out of wedlock. So was there a relationship between your father and your mother or was it like they went out and had a good time? And no, 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 okay. no. They, they were saintly people, by the way. I'm not I, I have more respect for my father and mother, probably than for any other two people that I've ever encountered. Uh, and I'm not saying it's always going to be that way. And it's not because they were my parents. And I've learned a lot about them, uh, you know, uh, over the years. In fact, when my father was dying is the first time I found out I had a sister and brother. And by the way, as a journalist, I find this complexity runs through a lot of families, you know, a lot of I just did a, read a whole 700 page book on Jimmy Carter, who I knew quite well. And I interviewed him for Playboy magazine, the famous Lust in Your Heart interview. So a guy, uh, Jonathan Alter, has written a very good book on, on Carter. And I did a podcast with him uh, and I learned a lot in, in their family that had this one was in jail and this one had another relay. So every family in America, whatever their race, color, religion or what have you, have complexity. That's the human experience. We all, and we're all fighting with the devil and we're all trying to be saintly or, you know, uh, uh, whatever our religion, whether you're a Buddhist or whether you're an atheist or anything, most people are struggling with their demons and trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. And sometimes they they surrender to greed. And after all, uh, since we began by talking about Jesus, that to my mind is the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan that your religion or identification is not critical because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, 
which is in only one of the Gospels. So, you know, I can't claim it's authentic. Uh, you know, Luke does, but I can't, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I find the parable really quite instructive because what happens, as everybody should know, is that when Jesus is, uh, you know, on, uh, on the road, uh, he's telling the parable, a lawyer challenges him at one of these meetings and said, how do you get eternal life? And, and Jesus uh, tells the story, the parable, and the parable is that a traveler, a Samaritan, who was not Jewish, who was not friendly to the Jews, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, is on the road, and he sees someone who's been beaten and uh, disheveled, and uh, this, everything has been stolen from him. And so, uh, and, and that person has been beaten first, a religious person, Jewish person goes by and skirts around them. And then someone from his own tribe, who is presumably Jewish, uh, also skirts around them. And then this Samaritan, who's from another tribe, then neither tribe like each other, he tends to this man, he puts him on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, he tells the innkeeper, take care of him, I'll see you when I come back from my trip, if you're taking good care of him, I'll compensate you again. And then Jesus, and the lawyer is still bugging Jesus, and says, well, what's that got to do? He says, that, who do you think is going to have eternal life? And, and it's, it's not the members of his tribe, or even the leader of the religion in his tribe, it's the person from the other tribe who bothered to take care of the other. And to my mind, that affects how we see the homeless in L.A., you know, how we see people who are a different skin color, different religion, different background, and so forth. And my parents, for me, were really a test case of all that because my mother was Jewish from Lithuania and her entire family got killed in World War II, and they were killed by other people, mostly led by the Germans. Mm. And my father was from Germany and I love my father and he was a great guy. And I was born in 1936. And so, uh, you know, I go right through the whole war, 10, 11 years old at the end and wondering how did my father's people do this horrible thing to my mother's people? You know, uh, it's, it's a question, by the way, Jimmy Carter had to answer about his people in the South. How did white Southerners, even so-called moderate ones, go along with first slavery and then uh, segregation, you know, including Thomas Jefferson and others, right? George Washington. It's a fundamental question of ethics in human existence. How, why do good people go along with evil? Uh, how do you struggle against evil? What is evil? How do you determine it? So I had an object lesson with my own parents because my, my, to answer your question about how they got together, no, it wasn't over sex, although obviously sex had to happen or I wouldn't have been born. Right. But my father was married to a, a woman that, you know, I, I got to know her and I liked her fine. Uh, but it, for whatever reason, um, it, it wasn't working. He had two children who were older teens. He was very loyal to them. And by the way, at his funeral, his fam other family asked me to be the one speaker at the funeral. And there were a lot of people came from the factory where my father worked and everything. And they were people of different backgrounds. And I had, I paid tribute to my father at their request. They had great admiration for my father. But anyway, however it happened, my father and mother met and they fell in love. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and my father continued to support his other family and continue to be a good father and so forth. In fact, my half-brother, uh, was in the U.S. Army Air Force and even bombed Germany and so forth. So it's a whole story about family. Uh, right. But uh, and I must say, with my German relatives, who also happen to be quite progressive union people, uh, they were very uh, uh, against an, uh, uh, anti-Semitism and they were very enlightened and they were very critical of what was happening in Germany, as was my father. And my father even learned Yiddish so he could speak to uh, people in, in, in our neighborhood, which was quite mostly Jewish. And people had Yiddish was quite common language then in, in our neighborhood. And my father and mother had a very close relationship of, of great respect, but it did challenge certain notions of parenting. And I want to say something about that. Uh, I, and I don't know if you've ever read uh, Colin Powell's autobiography. Uh, but it happened that Colin Powell grew up in a neighborhood right near mine. He also went to City College, the same 
class in engineering that I was in, the City College of New York. Mm -hmm. So I was intrigued by his autobiography. And I've actually talked to him about it a few times as a journalist when I've talked to him uh, that we had this in common. And, and we compared parenting and life, in his case, growing up as a kid, uh, a, a person, you know, of, of color, a father from the islands and so forth, uh, and, and my family. And there were great similarities when I read his autobiography. And in my case, you know, I grew up as a latch, what used to be called a latchkey kid, you know, and meaning that your parents were not there. And I lived in an apartment up in the Bronx, one bedroom apartment, and we didn't have any money. And my parents worked as garment workers. My mother sews sweaters. And so, so if forth. you, if so, if your parents were at work, um, who did, were there babysitters or they no, didn't have the neighbors? Those neighbors yeah, watched yeah. each other's children. Yeah, and and what that's what they meant by the latch key. I had a key to the house to the apartment, but I had to check in with Mrs. Nussbaum on the third floor and, oh. you know, she'd make sure I had a glass of milk or something. And then, of course, there, there was childcare because this was in a more enlightened period of capitalism. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been president. He died when I was, you know, 11, uh, 36, 46, yeah, 10 and, uh, 10 and a half. And, uh, but we had after school programs, you know, and this is described in Colin Powell's book, the whole social structure that supported poorer people, mm. which we were. His parents were poor also. And and uh, we had free education at City College of New York. Uh, they even had, a, just before our class, they had free textbooks. And there was no tuition. And it was the best college in America. I still believe that. CCMY, Allegaroo. So, you know, uh, it wasn't like, I don't want to cry, you know, like it was a horrible existence. It was quite supported. Uh, you know, as I said, there were after school programs, you know, uh, beginning with kindergarten. Uh, and uh, we lived in a nursery school for the first few years. So my father was like a handyman in addition to being a machinist. So he could fix everything. So I got free nursery care, you know. So basically, I was cared for by others. And mm -hmm. then but my parents came home, you know, they went to, if they had a strike or they were at union meetings, they were pretty left and they would, you know, go to lectures. They go to museums at night. They like culture and everything. They, they were famous debates in New York city, things like that. Education, there were a lot of educational programs for poorer people. Uh, they were very smart. They self-educated and I had nothing but respect for them. And that doesn't mean they were flawless. My father had a temper. You know, my father was a strong German farm boy, and I obeyed him. <laughs> I didn't challenge my father, you know. Uh, and, in fact, one of my father's son's stories, uh, you know, I was very close to my – we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. I got the bedroom because they wanted to stay up late, and the living room was basically their bedroom, their their whole thing. And, uh, you know, but I, I would – I remember wrestling with my father, uh, friendly, friendly wrestling, you know, just kidding around, but for the first time, one, the first time, but I was actually able to throw him down on the couch, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, now by then I was in college and then he uh, died. Uh, he had a heart attack at his factory at the machine and uh, dragged himself home. Shouldn't have done that because uh, he, he didn't want to incur any big medical bills, got on the train, came all the way up to the Bronx an hour away. And then walked up five flights to get to our place and uh, passed that on the bed. And then we got him to the hospital and then he died. And I had real guilt. You know, I had had this very friendly wrestling. My father, who I, you know, respected, he never, you know, would always threaten to take, my mother would say, Fred, get the belt. You know, he would always threaten to be giving me, a, you know, a spanking, but he never did. He never did. And I didn't cross him because I respected him. I didn't want to disappoint him. That was my... And I haven't been as good a father in that respect, which requires really being consistent. When I was 12 years old, I, 12 and a half, uh, you know, I got a job. Uh, it was, you know, couldn't even get working papers, but my father was thrilled. Yeah, he's got a job. He's already a man. I remember my father used to say to me, uh, you do what I say, uh, but when you get, when you make your own money, you'll be a man you know, my father had come over when he was a young kid to, to the United States. So he said, when you, you make your own money, then you'll decide. 
Well, when I was 12 and a half, I went from being the poorest kid to the richest kid in my neighborhood in about two weeks because I got <laughs> a job delivering milk for oh, a grocer wow. that wanted to keep the milk companies out. And it required being up at four in the morning and going up and down in this tenement with glass bottles of milk, you know, 12 in a, each side. And I'm this little skinny kid and I'm going up and there's no elevator. I'm walking up and down the walk-ups and uh, nobody, no other parent would let their kid take the job. You know, this guy would leave his milk on all the corners and I was his delivery system. He thought he was going to have a dozen kids, but he had only me. And he paid me well because he didn't want to lose me. And uh, I was delivering there for, you know, the seven o'clock or something, delivering all this milk. And then I go to school and my mother thought, wow, this is terrible. My father thought it was great. But my father <laughs> stuck to his promise. From that day on, there's a German expression, schreinisht. It means keep quiet. When my mother would tell me what to do after I was 12 and a half, my mother would say, my father would say, schreinisht. I said, I'm man. I'm a man. That I became by his his eye, and he was very consistent. You know, uh, now you still had to be home at a certain time, you know, and so forth. You still had to wear a press shirt. He would press the shirt and all that. You know, uh, when we go out on the weekend, he had his rules. You know, uh, very clear rules. And like I say, I never crossed him, but mostly because I didn't want to disappoint him. Uh, and but he was a tough guy, and he had a temper, and he had his realities. Was he scary or? No, he didn't give up. Anybody, anybody who's got a temper is going to be scary when they lose the temper. Uh, but I would say my father, the worst thing I ever seen my father do with his temper was break every dish in the kitchen because he hit his head on the cupboard. And it really, I don't know what, he got pissed off with himself. And he broke, I, in my memories, he broke every dish. And we didn't have, we didn't have any money. And, you know, so there wasn't going to be easily replaced Right. Uh, and my mother and I cowered in a way in the in the living room. Yeah, we were worried what's going on here. And but, you know, um, he cleaned it up. Uh, he worked overtime. He got new dishes and nothing <laughs> like that ever happened again. So I, wa- I don't want to make it sound like it was constant, but he right. had his failings like everybody does. Right. And he had a temper. And, and, you know, like he would be real every weekend, my mother and father would walk across Bronx Park to go visit my aunt or somebody. That was their whole idea of entertainment, you know. And if my mother was late getting down, my father would be fuming, you know, where is she? Mom? You know, so I'm not going to say there was no reality that we have in every family. You right. know? Uh, yeah, I understand that. I, I, I just to back up a bit. It, it sounds like your father equated work to being a man. And that's very interesting. Um, no, responsibility. Or responsibility. To, because to be I'll it. tell you what he said about work. He said, you got to put money in now in that bowl we had. You, you know, we're still basically paying the rent. We're paying all that. But you're going to give something back. He left it up to me how much I wanted to give back. Mm-hmm. You know, And I won't lie. I won't lie to you. Sometimes when I needed money, I took money out of that that bowl. And he knew it because he would collect silver dollars. That was our in-house saving system, you know. So he he was aware this was a leaky banking system. But he expected me to put, put back. He expected me to buy. You know, I bought my first bike, okay. I was, I was the only kid in the neighborhood that didn't have a bike. And I remember I did it on a layaway plan. But that was because I was delivering milk. And then I got a job. I never stopped working after I was 12 and a half. It was my ticket to independence. And my father honored it. And just to complete that little story, when I was 16, I told my father and mother uh, in the summer, I'm hitchhiking across the United States with my friend Eric, who's a year older. And he said, my father, my mother said, what do you mean you can't go? Well, you can't. And my father said, how are you going to pay for this? And I said, oh, we have a job in a steel mill in Pennsylvania we heard about, you know, Fearless Steel Mill. And then we, there's a Levittown. They're building Levittown down there in uh, Pennsylvania. And so my father says, good, good. He says, uh, don't expect money. Don't call. Uh, when you come home, you tell me all about it, you know. And there I got on the Bronx River Parkway with my thumb out hitchhiking when I was 16 years old. So my father was consistent. And I called him from Chicago because I got arrested for 
sleeping in the park. Mm-hmm. I got got to make a phone call, and I call for my father trying to get some money, you know, pay my whatever the fine was. And my father said, "Well, where happened to your job?" And I said, "Well, it was real hard, and we worked. So we're now in Chicago. We're not in." And my father said, "Oh, uh, too hard. You didn't make the job." He said, "So." Okay. He said, uh, good luck to you. He says, when you come home, you tell me all about it. And he hung up on me. That was consistent. That was consistent. That was the deal. He wasn't going to bail me out. You know, he come over to the United States at a younger age and fended for himself. So he was consistent at that moment. I thought, whoa, that's really something. But I never forgot it. I never thought he would bail me out or anything else. When I got home, though, he listened to me for hours and hours. He wanted to know everything. What did you see? What was it like? How did they live? You know, everything. Everything. He, he, could, he could sit there for five hours without interrupting me, asking me what I had learned, you know. No. So I, I, I thought it was an idea. And by the way, I'm not putting down my mother because this is about fathers. My mother was incredible. All right? So I just want to put it out oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it sounds yeah. like... Uh... Your father let you do a lot of growing on on your own, but he was still there as a ear and a listening as a listening father of you know listening a with, role model right a just role living model. out right right. I'll tell you why he was a role model. My father and mother really cared a lot more about other people than about themselves, and that is very hard to do in real life, in real life, and I could see it. Why were they late to get home? Because they're on strike or they're in a union meeting where they care about what's happening in farm. My parents went down on the weekend to pick at the White House, you know, open the second front, uh, go to war with Germany, whatever. You know, all these issues really matter. I got my whole politics and my social interests from my parents. I'm not a rebel against my parents. And the reason I'm on the left, the reason I consider myself or try to be a progressive person is because I I look at what's happening to people now who don't have a lot of money or are not doing well. And I see my parents, you know, I grew up, I see my neighbors. So I'm not one of the people who rebelled against their background. And my parents were really enlightened and on stuff that really mattered to them. For my father, to be a strong anti-fascist meant he got a broken nose in some, you know, meetings and bars and everything. He, he, you know, I remember I would go fishing with my uncle Edward or my father would go fishing a lot. That was a big thing out in, uh, you know, Long Island, uh, Jones Beach or anything. If somebody made an anti-Semitic or racist remark anywhere near them, my father and my uncle would punch him out. They'd be in a fight, you know, would start reasonably mm-hmm. with an oral argument. But they, they were not, you know, just saying one thing in one place or another. They, they were for real. And they came out of a very different tradition. And, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm not trying to eliminate my mother here because she was even stronger. <laughs> my mother was really, there's actually a movie some people made about me called Above the Fold, and you can get it on. Uh, canopy and other places, but some some people made a movie yeah. about your life already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a documentary about my political activism and my journalism and so forth. It's called Above the Fold. By the way, I have a website podcast called Sheer Intelligence. If people want to follow up, and 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 uh, and the podcast is called uh, Sheer Post, and uh, that movie is actually on that. You can see it. Uh, but yeah, they, they were, I wouldn't say they're unusual. I think there's a lot of great people in this world and my parents happened to be two of them. Uh, and they never went, I don't think they did much high school. They certainly never graduated any high school, uh, but they cared about the world. Mm -hmm. They were smart. They self-educated. They read a lot. They, any free debate in New York, that they could go to or, you know, after school program or union meeting, they went, you know, so and they just to jump in. It sounds like you're, you got your political, you, like you stated, you get your political foundation from your parents because they were out there absolutely. being activists protesting and you're seeing these things. You say, okay. And, and they're standing up for what they say is right. And they want uh, uh, their children to grow up in a society where, things are better than how they had it. And, and, and I really uh, 
admire that with, that they're showing you these, um, you know, training you up in that way. Uh, so that that's actually one of my questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, you have a lot of political things. Uh, did your father contribute to that? And the answer is yes. Uh, another thing I wanted to do is shift really quick. <clears throat> when you graduated and you were doing college and all of these things, how was your relationship with your father then? Were, were, were you still in close connection with him or when you were away at school? It kind of... Well, my father, my father died while I was in college. Oh, that's right. So he had a heart attack in his factory and then dragged himself home. home yeah. and then he died. So I was, I think, already, I guess I was a junior. I, I It took me five years to get through City College because I was an engineering student. And then I switched and stayed another year. I was only an engineering student because my father thought, if you're going to go to college, you should be able to have a job. And he thought, if you study engineering, uh, you'll have a job. And to make my father happy, and besides, it happened to be what I was good at, math and science, not what I do for a living, which is writing. I couldn't pass English and I was terrible in foreign languages and everything, but I could do math and science. So it was the only way I actually could get into City College was as an engineering student. But my father was quite happy because he, you know, he was very technically very good. My father assembled his, our first TV, you know, <laughs> he was very handy, very smart, and he was a knitter mechanic. He could fix big knitting machines and so forth, very competent. Uh, and, uh, you know, my mother, you know, I don't, I'm not going to leave my mother out. My mother, my father died while I was in college. My mother lived with me after she finished 60. And when she was 65, she'd been a garment worker for, you know, she, she was born in, at the turn of the century, came over from Russia in 1919, 1920. And then she was a garment worker, you know, working all those years, sewing machine, like, you know, people from Central America and Mexico are doing right now in LA and uh, that's what my mother did. You know, I, I was I had jobs down in the garment district, so I could go by the factory where my mother was working and see how they worked. And I knew that whole idiom. And uh, so my, my mother, when she she didn't want to leave the Bronx and went, until she could get her Social Security and her union pension, which is, I think, all of about 140 bucks a month or something. And uh, at the time, altogether. And she came and lived with me in Berkeley, California, where I had been in graduate school. And, and she lived with me till she died, which was when she was 88. So, you know, I could give you a whole thing about mothers. <laughs> and my mother was a truly formidable, wonderful figure. But, you know, I did have enormous respect for my father. Right. Enormous respect. So, so you said your father passed away when you were in college. Um, yeah. So he didn't get a chance to see you. When you said you had grandchildren and sons and things like that, no, but he 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 did have a big impact. Even and by the way, I don't want to tell you the great thing about my parents; they did not demand agreement. That mm -hmm. they they first of all they had been betrayed by their own gods. Okay, mm -hmm. gods had failed them. You know, they had been, you know, my father was a wobbly and a leftist and a socialist of one kind or another, and even briefly a communist. And my mother had started out in the Jewish religion. My father had been a Lutheran mm -hmm. as a young man. He saw the priest in his hometown. I went back to Germany and met my uncles and aunts and, you know, that was still alive. And, you know, the, the minister in our hometown in Germany had worn a Nazi uniform. Oh, wow. Under his clerical garb, you know. So my father was well aware of all of these contradictions. My father found himself in the United States in World War One, which was a war against Germany or with Germany. So he had to deal with the limits of patriotism and jingoism and, you know, how you label people. And then World War Two, he's in love with a Jewish woman and is living in a Jewish neighborhood. And my father even learned Yiddish which is not that different than German, but he was fluent in Yiddish. And, and uh, my father could converse with Jewish refugees in my neighborhood in, in Yiddish fluently. And yet all of our relatives on the Jewish side were killed. You know, how do you explain that as an eight, nine-year-old kid? What the hell is going on here? You know, uh, these nice Germans that I go fishing with and celebrate Christmas with, you know, and everything else, you know, how did they end up killing all my Jewish relatives? You know, mm -hmm. but this was not something you thought about because some teacher brought up in class. This was at dinner conversations. Mm. You know, what did this mean? So I was introduced to contradictions, to complexity, 
to all the things I teach at USC, the contradictions, you know, as Leonard Cohn says, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason I like teaching is you can deal with the contradictions and open up space for new thinking, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what I do. And I got it from my parents' life. It was a real, look, you know, Jimmy Carter couldn't have a a more different life. Mm -hmm. Southern, patrician, agrarian, Georgia. But I just read, I spent the last week thinking once again about Jimmy Carter and reading a 780-page book about Jimmy Carter and interviewing the author of the book. And Jimmy Carter, you know, he's old now and he's probably going to pass away soon. And I was thinking, here we come from such totally different backgrounds, and yet the issues were quite the same. Mm. Do you care about the other? You know, he grew up in outside of Plains in a place where most of the people were black, but they were in a, a, the, the next stage after slavery. They're sharecroppers. You know, his young friends, they were, could be friends up until you're about nine, but then no, you go through the gate before them. And then you don't talk to them. And then they become non-people. And then you can justify, and Jimmy Carter had real contradictions in his life. You even go along with segregation. And and he's ahead of the school system before he becomes an enlightened liberal. And he goes along with black kids not having any education. So, you know, these kind of contradictions happen everywhere, every culture, every family. And you got to deal with them. You know, you got to deal with the contradictions and then say, okay, where's goodness? Where's evil? How do you get one? How do you defeat the other? That's the reality of life, whether you're religious or secular, by the way. Right. So it sounds like uh, your father didn't uh, push or instruct or even demonstrate like a Lutheran type of background. Is, is that what he demonstrated before you? Did you guys go to church or do religious services? No, no, my parents were both quite suspicious of religion because religion in their eyes had betrayed them. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, you when you said their gods have betrayed them. That's what you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, and, and in my mother's case too, my mother came from a family of rabbis, uh, but this was the old shtetl Orthodox Jews of, of Eastern Europe. And, and the women were not supposed to be independent and women were not supposed to be educated. And, you know, everybody now has a, a much kinder view of the old Testament life, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but the fact is, you know, uh, it was quite um, restrictive, uh, you know, uh, of people like my mother and her sisters and so forth. And uh, so my mother did not have a benign view of the Jewish religion, even though she came from a family of, uh, of the rabbinical tradition, a very strong Orthodox tradition. And uh, there were a lot of this. All, what I'm saying is, you know, we, we underestimate the intelligence of people who don't have formal education, you know, and, and there's this meritocracy that dominates our thinking in this country now that somehow if you go to Harvard, you're somehow going to be a, a more intelligent person. Well, the fact is much of uh, more mischief can be attributed to graduates of Harvard than to San Francisco State, mm. okay? Uh, I'm not putting down San Francisco State, but uh, or City College where I went to school. You know, the meritocracy does not produce goodness. Mm-hmm. We know that, you know, including our current president, uh, who after all went to the Wharton School, which is an elite uh, school, and he certainly seems to perform in, within the meritocracy. Uh, but uh, it's all of them, Democrat or Republican, uh, right. education has not been a path to enlightenment uh, in, in general on a moral, certainly not on a sense of how you behave to the other, to, to your fellow human beings. Right. I, know, I, I, I agree. I agree there. Uh, I, I have this saying, I, I probably borrowed it from someone, but where it's like, I believe that just because you can get a good grade doesn't make you a... Uh, that doesn't show what your character is. You know, a lot of people can cheat and get good grades or slack and get good grades or coast and get good grades, but that says nothing about your character in a sense, right? They're two different things. Um, and I think what you, to your point, somehow a lot of people believe that, Hey, you get good grades. This person really has it together. This person's going to be successful. This person's going to be this. And that's not always the case. 
So I uh, just wanted to add that in there to, to that point you just said, like you, you brought up the president. Uh, I don't know what his markings were in uh, school. Maybe they're very good, but that doesn't say anything about his character. It just says he probably knows vis- business very well. Let me push this a little further. It doesn't even say much about his education and the real meaning of education. Ah, okay. The schools don't teach curiosity. They don't teach, really spend much time on ethics. Uh, basically, ethics are defined about what what is legal. What can you get away with? What will you be punished for? So, yes, you can't cheat on an exam because you'll be caught and you'll, your career will be damaged. Well, law it varies from country to country and from period to period. Slavery was legal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that mean it was ethical? You know, uh, uh, what the banks did during the great housing meltdown was legal because they got to write the laws. They did it when Bill Clinton was president. You can't even blame that one on Trump. You know, they got to deregulate Wall Street. Uh, Millions of people lost their homes and jobs and life saving and so forth. It's not ethical. So being smart in the meritocracy and being the Germans were the best educated people in the world when they turned to fascism, Mm -hmm. you know. They, they weren't the losers. They had the highest level of technology and education and science and music in the world when they turned into be the worst barbarians in the world. <laughs> they acted in the most primitive way in the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go further than you. It's, that, it's, it's not only uh, education is not a necessary, it's not a sufficient condition. It doesn't tell you anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we had German scientists of the highest rank who, who were for uh, biological dividing of people and, uh, you know, killing people with the wrong gene set and everything, you know, uh, uh, and we had it in our own country. We had the, the people who supported slavery and segregation, and everything. I mean, how do you explain Jefferson and Washington? Clearly very smart people, probably the best educated people in the colonies at that time. Why did they put that in the Constitution that, that uh, you know, slaves were not full human beings, right? even freed slaves? I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't want to harp on that, but it's a pretty big, good example of this, you know, in, in our own society, which we often much admire. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's a trap. I'm all for education. I wouldn't be teaching all the time. I start teaching in a matter of days and I put a lot of effort into it. Uh, but the question is, what are you teaching? You know, are you, and the main thing is, are you teaching critical thinking? Are you teaching to, to look through it, to think differently, think outside the box, care about, you know, people who don't get counted normally? I can't believe at USC that we aren't studying the homeless. Mm-hmm. Some people are. We have some very good programs at USC, neighborhood outreach. But God, you go to college in any urban setting in America and you have the very people that Jesus was referring to in the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. And they're huddled in hallways. You don't know if they're alive or dead. Nobody cares. Are they alive or dead? Who are they? Do they have children? Are they fathers, mothers? You know, where are their children? There are children in these shelters also. Mm-hmm. The idea that at every major American college, every urban major American college, and there's plenty of rural poverty and homeless, but the visible poverty in American cities, and anybody can call himself a Christian, you know, or call themselves a Jew or a Buddhist or anything else, or even a decent atheist, and I shouldn't say even, and a decent moral atheist, you know, and, and what, you just walk by these people? Well, you don't need to read Jesus to know you're not supposed to just walk by them. You're supposed to inconvenience your life and care, mm-hmm. you know, care about who they are. How did they end up in that situation? Right. And then there's the the non-visible poor, the people who know they're trying to struggle by. But how are they living right now in this pandemic? I I got a very large uh, place I'm living here. I I could jog. I ran seven miles this morning in my apartment. Well, most people in L.A., they don't have an apartment you can run seven miles in. You know, you, you would bunk into everybody. You know, you may have eight people living there in this kind of space, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about that as I'm running around my house this morning, trying to stay alive, you know, keep my body going. I can't go to a gym. A lot of people can't go to a gym anyway, can't afford it or what have you, but I'm doing that very proud of myself. But, you know, then I think, how is everybody else getting by? Well, it's better not to think about it. Too good to check. uh, You know, don't check it out. Well, Jesus says you have to check it Mm -hmm. out. 
if you don't check it out, you know, you're not doing the right thing. You're not, you know, uh, you're not going to be finding an eternal life that you're going to welcome. Well, right? I, I, no, I, I definitely agree. You have some points there. If you bring me to your church, I'll give a sermon about this. <laughs> Uh, it definitely has some points. I, I share the same sentiments, but I like to peel it back a little bit further than that. I, I like to comb it. Back. You want me to shut up? Well, let me shut up and you just no, no, take it where you want to take no, it. No, 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 no. We can we stay here. Um, I like to comb it back. A few. By the way, is the mic still sounding all right? Yeah, it still sounds good. Can you hear me? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. But I just don't. Okay. Yeah, you sound good. It's, it's good. Yeah. Um, I like to peel it back a little bit and think about it like this. Yes, there is a, uh, well, in, in my faith, there, there's definitely a call to serve the community. Um, but I also like to peel it back another layer to the family first. So if I'm, if I'm walking around and I'm a so-called Christian um, and I'm married and things like that, the family is that foundational piece that, that you get a lot of time with and you need to deposit things into in order to the the further the next generation or so on and so forth um and i think sometimes they get skipped over a whole lot as well a lot of people are quick to serve the communities but neglect their families and i think that's a problem in and of itself which is why uh you know part of this podcast the father's table is that fathers have to be vital or should be must be vital in their child's life as long as with their mother, as long as they're, uh, as well as their mothers as well. But this is just focusing on fathers' roles. Fathers need to be there in their children's lives because there's a lot of also research about the damages that happen when fathers aren't there. Um, so we can definitely help people in the community, but I would say help people in the that's closest around you first, and not leave them hanging as well. So. What's your takes? What's your thoughts on that? Why separate the two? Mm -hmm. The best thing you can do for your children is to what my parents did for me: show concern for the other. Mm -hmm. It's the main moral lesson that you should get from your parents. If your parents are selfish, if they're all about material things, if they only care about themselves, even if they care about you mm -hmm. because you're their family, mm -hmm. then no, that's not. That's not the most important lesson you should get from a parent. Mm -hmm. The most important, I think you basically, and I've learned this from my own students at USC, their ethics generally come from their parents, for good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. uh, they mostly are influenced by those first years. And, you know, whatever they say they are, they might say, I'm Catholic. I always ask them, we go around the table, where do you get ethics from? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic high school. Or I'm, you know, or I'm a Seventh-day Adventist or I'm a Buddhist or I'm, no, I come from a secular atheist family. But they always bring it back to a couple of things. They bring it back to their family. Mm -hmm. They bring it back pretty much to a notion of the golden rule. Mm -hmm. It's complex, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you or some variant goes back before Confucius, but certainly Confucius had it before we even refer to Christ and Aristotle. And, you know, a lot of people wrestle with this question, but, you know, but that could be a cynical view. It can be, hey, I'm not going to do it because I don't want somebody punch me if I punch them. But mm -hmm. it, it at least forces you to recognize an obligation to outside your inner circle. Mm -hmm. I agree with your basic point. I think the first test of any human being obviously, is how do you relate to the people closest to you, beginning with your family, you know, and, and yes, I mean, the whole idea, you know, you're great out there in some abstract issue or saving the world and you're not saving the people around you. No, I mean, that's where we got all this, you know, exploitation, gender exploitation and everything, you know, you, you, you're saving the world, but you're not saving your wife, you're freeing the world, but your wife uh, or your children are, are, are suffering. That's yeah, clearly. Uh, so the first test always is how do you treat people? But that includes the people who work for you, who clean your house. Right. You know, uh, you know what, what, what is it that, you, let's say you have money and there's somebody else raising your children and cleaning your house. How are you behaving towards them? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, are they making a good wage? <clears throat> do they get to spend time with their family? So it starts very early. 
And uh, the cynicism about Trump, my cynicism, is what did he learn from his father was probably we're the important people. And if we're doing well, that's all that matters. I mean, that's, you know, and his father was a rich German. My father was a poor German. But, you know, we have come from a similar cultural, at least half of me comes from a similar cultural immigrant background. You know, German-Americans were the biggest immigrant group here. I think they still are, but for a long time. And uh, I recognize that. Now, you know, uh, and in every immigrant group, there's two tendencies. In every group, there's two tendencies, you know. So I think it's what you're putting out there in a way is a, a false uh, dichotomy. What do you mean? I think, and, and, and I don't want to be too strong about this because I know that was not your intention. But I think um, your basic point is absolutely valid. Anybody who says, I have to save the world so I can screw over all or I can ignore all these people around me, well, that's the, that's the first step towards immorality. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's on every level, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, no, you have to show in your personal behavior and everything else that you have a moral core, you know, and, and we should challenge. By the way, I'm not talking about challenging other people. I think we have to challenge ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's because we're the observer of it, you know, right. like was I, uh, you know, angry with my wife just before because I couldn't find where she put something that I needed for this podcast with you. Who took my no? Or should I put it a different way? Should I go apologize? We've been married for three, three years. Should I go apologize and say, hey, in order, you know, I, I was really wrong. You know, I, well, I will because I'm not going to stay married for another 43 years if I don't get that message that you better shape your ways and apologize. And that's an ongoing thing. Right. So I take your main point. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. You got to live it. You got to live the talk and you got to live it on the most personal level. And you got to challenge yourself where you're just going to sell out anyway. Right. And then it's going to be a bunch of words. It doesn't matter whether you're left or right. It doesn't, you're just. Right. It, 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 it loses its, its potency. I think I, I, I'm, I'm writing it. I'm sorry. It moved it to what? I think, um, your values, if, if you have ambitions to help society, the community, the world, I think if your family structure is is not being helped, it loses the potency of your message that you're trying to convey. Thank you for listening to the Father's Table podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you share. For more episodes and blogs, check out www.fatherspodcast.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Father's Table Podcast and Twitter at Father's Stories. The Father's Table, an introspective look and conversation about our fathers and how they shaped our lives.